Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. There is a deepening suspicion that politicians are out to serve themselves and not the country, said David Cameron in 2010, adding that the culture of excessive lobbying and quiet words in ministers' ears was threatening to do even more damage to the battered reputation of Parliament, and it was the next big scandal waiting to happen. Well, he was right. What he didn't seem to foresee is that he would be at the centre of that scandal, My guest today is the financial journalist Duncan Maven. After reporting on the rise and fall of Greensill Capital for several years, Duncan has now written The Pyramid of Lies, a book of this extraordinary story. I know the term is overused, but if anything ever deserved the title expose, this does. And he is here to talk to us about it. Welcome to the bunker, Duncan Maven. Thanks, Alex. It's uh, great to be here. Let's start with a little bit of personal filler, as it were. Who was Lex Greensill pre-Greensill Capital? Because it's quite an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, Lex was uh, born in a very small town in in Australia called Bundaberg. It's uh, a farming community, fairly remote. This is very, very key to who he is, in, in his mind as much as anybody else's. So he was born into a farming family, might imagine it's quite a sort of uh, macho kind of culture. And Lex is, mm. is not really a sporty guy. He's quite a small intellectual type guy. And this sort of plays into his sense of who he is, I think, for many, many years afterwards. You know, he, he's out to impress the jocks. This little chip on his shoulder grows and grows, I think, um, over the years. Mm. Be- before we go on, from the way you're talking now, but also from the book, I sense a sort of underlying semi-affection for this character, certainly a familiarity that you have developed for him just from, you know, researching his every aspect of his life for so long. Well, it's interesting you say that um, because it's, it has been in the back of my mind from time to time. What do I think of Lex? And um, he is in many ways, kind of an underdog for much of his career. And so you're sort of rooting for him, right? You know, this underdog guy who's, you know, not come from the sort of typical background that ends up in high finance. He's come from a very, very different background and he's trying to build something really new and different. So to some degree, you end up kind of rooting for him. You want this little guy to Mm. be successful. 
The problem is when things go wrong, he's not willing to uh, admit that things go wrong. And sometimes that means doubling down on problems. Mm. Now, Greensill Capital, why were so many people excited about its ideas about financing? Yeah, well, I don't want to get too much into the technical stuff because it, it gets sure. pretty dry. But essentially, Lex's pitch was that he was going to democratize finance. But what it, what it was, was he provided a kind of financing called supply chain finance that typically is only offered to big corporations. And what it does is sort of help smooth the flow of goods and services between companies. It means that suppliers of goods and services don't have to wait 90 days or 180 days to get their money. But as I say, it's typically only offered to really big companies. Lex believed he had a way of offering that to much smaller companies. And that was kind of interesting. But in the post-financial crisis world, it was really interesting. So many governments have been trying to get money into their economies and make money move more efficiently through the system. And if, in theory, Lex was offering a way to do this. Was that quite a disruptive idea? I mean, what I'm thinking about is that what you spoke about, this ability to smooth finance for large companies, it's quite a big competitive advantage um, and one that they may not want smaller uh, entrants to their markets to have. It was definitely disruptive, um, consciously so. Right. So Greensill Capital was very consciously trying to disrupt the way the banks had offered this kind of service in the past. Lex would talk about that. In fact, uh, there was uh, an interview on Sky TV at one point um, when Greensill was going strong and uh, the interviewer uh, held up a copy of an article I had written and sort of waved it at Lex to say, you know, this is pretty negative about you. And he said, uh, something along the lines of, well, you know, haters going to hate. Uh, when you're a disruptor, bad things come your way and <laughs> sticks and stones get thrown at you. Um, they were absolutely consciously trying to disrupt the banks. I think there was a sort of personal element to that too. So, you know, um, Lex had worked at Morgan Stanley and he'd worked at City and it hadn't quite worked out for him in those places. And so I think there was an element of this that was Lex Greensill showing these banks how to do their job properly. Um, you mm. know, you might say that because he called it Greensill Capital, named it after himself, that shows how personal that, it, that was. Yeah. Were there early alarm ringers? Was anyone saying, wait a minute? So, yeah, there were. So throughout his career, there were people who were, you know, even when he was at the banks at Morgan Stanley and City, there were people who were saying, "This guy, this is not right. This, this guy's pushing the envelope. He's going into areas we don't like." The problem was, you know, when the business is smaller and he he's doing things that people don't like, nobody really feels the need to do too much about mm. it. I think, you know, it's it's we're not going to lose billions of dollars. That comes later, and when that when that happens, you know, it's already too late. But there are, definitely are naysayers. Um, at one point, Greensill Capital gets kind of caught up with a company, a giant kind of hedge fund asset manager called GAM. And there is a whistleblower there who stands up and says, hey, we've invested a lot of money in this stuff with Greensill. And I don't think we've done our work properly because I'm not mm. very happy about what that stuff is. I mean, that, in that case, you know, as happens often to whistleblowers, the guy ultimately lost his job. That's, that's really, you know, it's quite depressing, actually. Mm. What about the regulator? 
Was there something that was causing them concern? So the, the regulator is really interesting on this. Uh, Green Cell Capital was set up in a very uh, particular way that meant actually it didn't really have a really dominant regulator. So the company was registered in Australia. In theory, the Australians look after it, but doesn't do much business there. A lot of the funds it worked with were in Switzerland. So in theory, the Swiss would look after it, but actually they kind of only regulate Credit Suisse and they don't <laughs> really look at the funds. He's got a bank in Germany that's regulated by the German uh, regulators, but really they're only looking at that bit of the business. And then in the UK, they had registered in a, in a particular way through, a, through an agent, which was a sort of light touch registration meant for small businesses and family companies and that kind of thing, not for multi-billion dollar companies. And so in a way, Greensill kind of hid in this gray area where nobody was really a kind of primary regulator. That said, there were red flags popping up at regulators all over the place, um, and they weren't really doing much about it. And I think if you look in the UK, the first inclination that the UK's financial regulators should have had that something was wrong was when this blow-up happened at the hedge fund GAM I mentioned earlier with the whistleblower yeah. there. I, from my reporting, have seen lots of the documents that I know the regulator also saw. And to me, it's not understandable that they didn't act on it. Now, I suspect if you talk to people there, they will say, first of all, we don't have that much time. We've got a lot of things to look after. This wasn't a company we regulated. It was a company that was doing business with a company we regulated. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, you know, we manage trillions of dollars or trillions of pounds of funds. We look after all of that. This was really small when it happened. And, you know, we, we can't look at everything. Yeah, this, this, it's interesting. Also, with the size, with what you were saying earlier, there's a, there was a lot of this gray area, basically, where he operated, where sort of between being too small to notice and too big to fail, between being regulated and not regulated. How did it all start to go wrong in simple terms? Well, there were a couple of things. So one, the, 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 the business of supply chain finance actually isn't very profitable at all. And that, that's the reason why the banks only offer it to their big clients, because mm. they don't make much money off it. They're offering it to clients typically because they've got some other business that is highly profitable. This is a kind of freebie they're offering up as a, as a way to keep their clients happy. So Lex trying to be disruptive, Green Cell Capital trying to be disruptive in that space. Well, you're trying to be disruptive in a not very profitable industry. Mm. Um, so in fact, what was happening at Green Cell Capital is on the one hand, there was a piece of the business that was kind of the core business, which was not really producing much in the way of profit at all. At the same time, as a fast-growing startup that's trying to get big investors interested, Green Cell Capital needed to show a lot of revenue growth. And so what it was doing there, a lot of profit growth as well, what it was doing there was essentially just risky loans to risky companies. This wasn't supply chain finance at all. It was just lending to big companies or small companies that couldn't get loans elsewhere. Yeah, and because of the way uh, the financing wor worked, it was essentially lending other people's money. Yeah, it had no Green Cell Capital didn't have any money of its own. Yeah, um, it was either tapping into money from the German bank, which was getting deposits from especially German municipalities, or it was tapping into money from Credit Suisse's investors who were putting money into supply chain finance funds that were investing in green cells assets and 
wasn't yeah, any of it. Which is a classic pyramid sort of yeah, yeah. structure. If at any point the the clients coming in dry up, you have a lot of problems. Exactly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Duncan, why do you think people started paying more attention after companies involved with the scheme started needing government bailouts. I mean, I ask that both, both as a specific but also as a general question. Do you think there's a higher level of scrutiny the moment a company's fate, as it were, begins to impinge on public money? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting you say that. Uh, why, did it, why did it get more scrutiny? Because for me, I was looking at this company for a few years thinking, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Why is nobody paying attention to it? And so suddenly when, uh, actually when COVID hit, my first instinct was, these green cell guys will be all over the bailout money. This will be exactly the kind of money they will try and get their hands on. It's, it's interesting. You write uh, that in the spring of 2020, while the rest of us were worrying about surviving COVID and lockdown, Lex Greensill was seeing a sort of golden opportunity in what you describe as an unprecedented pool of government money. Was it ultimately this overreach, you think, that exposed him, or did it merely hasten what was always an inevitable collapse? Yeah, I, th I think in, in truth, I think this, this government money, I think the COVID money extended the life of Greensill capital. <laughs> It would have gone belly up earlier, basically, had it not yeah, been. Yeah, they, they would have run out of money earlier had it not been for that cash. And what, But what it did was it made it a mainstream story, right? This went from being a story about a, a sort of fairly obscure finance business that happened to have David Cameron as an advisor to when it collapsed, hey, that's our money, that's taxpayer money. What's happened mm. there? You know, And the fact that Cameron obviously was sort of caught lobbying through his text messages to his former colleagues, turned this from a story about an obscure finance firm that, you know, was doing essentially sort of risky practices and things that it said that it didn't say it was doing into a mainstream story about, you know, political wrongdoing and influence and the revolving door and so on. Mm. I'm just interested in whether there is a parallel reality out there where a couple of factors go the other way, a couple of calls are made differently, and Greensill Capital still exists right now as a respected firm. Lex Greensill is still a respected 
um, person behind it and the pyramid is continuing to grow, I guess. I, I think there is an alternative reality, but it's very alternative because it probably, <laughs> it probably requires most of the personalities in, at a senior level in this thing to not be there, right? So I think the alternative reality is that, that it, Lex and a few others recognize a couple of years ago that some of the loans they've made are not good loans and they turn around and they write them off and, you know, they take their hit, they take the hit and the valuation of the company drops and they have to sort of start again and the growth is much, much slower and they're not going to be billionaires. Maybe they're going to be multimillionaires uh, and it's going to take 20 years instead of, you know, two or three years. And, you know, in that case, yeah, there's a business there, but the reality is you would have to take out all of those people who were, desperate to get rich really fast and you know maybe the business doesn't mm. it doesn't exist without those personalities yeah um do you think that attitude towards the pandemic was unusual or are we likely as legal cases on government contracts go on and the covid inquiry gets going are we likely to see more companies and individuals who saw the pandemic as basically a big cash machine yeah, I mean, I, it's not my area of expertise, but to me, as a financial journalist, it definitely the, the, the you know, big scandal of the pandemic and the handling of it is going to end up being the financing, the money that got lost, mm, right? Mm. I mean, it's sort of, in my mind, similar to wartime profiteering, right? It's sort of yeah. a crisis. And while most of us are kind of, you know, trying to do our best thing to get through the crisis, some people are just sort of, you know, the pound signs kind of roll in front of their eyes and uh, they see it as an opportunity to get free money and not have to really work for it. Um, I read somewhere that what distinguishes the Greensill saga from other corporate scandals, and there have been many, is the way in which it encompasses and taints figures at the highest level of politics and officialdom. I mean, most notably David Cameron, former Cabinet Secretary Jeremy Haywood, would you agree with that assessment? Do you think that is the thing that makes it really quite unusual? I think so. It certainly piqued my interest as a journalist way back when I first started to pay attention to this. And knowing that there were red flags around it, this company and then hearing that a former prime minister was involved, you definitely you just pick up and you kind of go, well, this is interesting now. Um, mm. I think that is what's made it unusual. And I would say there are other politicians, right, who, who got who got involved, who were on the boards of various green cell entities. And it is unusual, I think. I, part of the reason for that, I think, is is Lex Greensill himself. I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to Lex, but it really is yeah. him. I think Lex, you know, was very good at understanding uh, what motivated people. And so he would look at what's going to get them on board and, and bring them into my organization because having them in my organization makes me more credible. Yeah. He actively sought out these people as a way to bring credibility to his firm. It's an extension of, of influencing as, as it's become known in many, many ways, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They are political influencers Absolutely. selling their services on the equivalent of Instagram. Door openers, right? And, and yeah. to be quite honest i mean what i heard from people inside green cell was a lot of people were really disturbed by it partly because they felt like you know cameron was getting paid really well and what was he really bringing to the table you know what does he know about supply chain finance what does he know about you know fund management in some ways lex was smarter than those people because he did know what what that brought and it was yeah. huge credibility 
Do we know what Lex actually thinks of it all? Does he still think it was all a jolly good idea? Does he feel betrayed by the politicians and industry tycoons who originally supported him but didn't stand by him? So he's an incredibly self-confident guy. Um, I think there was a couple of moments where he sort of said, I did this, this was all my fault. However, there are a lot more moments where he says, this was the fault of, you know, this other company, this was the fault of these guys over here. Uh, you know, if they just stood by us, it would have all been great. Mm. Um, so I think it's not in his nature to be especially self-reflective and take the blame. Yeah. Now, to begin to wrap up, I guess what I'm interested in is, has anything been done to make this happening again more unlikely at all? Are the international financial authorities talking to each other in a more meaningful way about stuff like this? Are politicians more careful about whom they um, are photographed with and that sort of thing? There is some tinkering around the edges, I think. So uh, actually there have been some moves by global accounting regulators to tighten up the rules on supply chain finance. So that might sort of make some of what Lex was doing a little bit more palatable. Um, you know, there has been parliamentary inquiries into lobbying by ex-ministers and ex-politicians. Um, so far, though, the, the, the real action has been very limited. And, you know, this mm. is always the way of these things. I think if you look at just yeah. about every financial scandal, there's a lot of talk and a lot of hot air. But ultimately, very little happens. Very little happens, yeah. There's an epilogue to the book. And some of it explains the ways in which uh, Lex Greensill has sought to distance other ventures from what happened, has sought to distance his personal fortune, his family um, from it. Is it in part the corporate veil that just allows people to do this crazy experiments that have the potential to blow up, knowing that the worst case scenario for them, for him, is a very comfortable early retirement. I mean, it, it just seems like not much of an incentive to not take massive risks. I think that's a real danger. But in this case, I would say there is a criminal investigation into Greensill in Switzerland. There's a criminal investigation into Greensill Bank in Germany. There are lawsuits flying around the world. You know, it's possible anything could come out of those. It's hard to know what's going to happen with that stuff, I guess. You know, there is a, a danger, as you say, that, you know, Lex goes down from four private jets to one and you know, lives <laughs> a very comfortable life and there is no consequence for this. Of not, you know, I guess the consequence is you don't become this giant multi-billion dollar organization. Instead, you just become a multi-multi-millionaire with a fairly nice life. And yeah, that's a that's a risk. And I think it's rare that authorities really clamp down, right? So I think the one time that happened was probably Enron. And that, that was in the US, where the authorities yeah. often are much more aggressive. I think in that particular case in Enron, if you look back at it, I think they, they essentially said, we're going to make an example of these guys. We are going to throw everything at it until somebody's, you know, somebody's gone to jail in that case. Um, is the political will here to do the same thing? You know, is the will of different parties that have been wrong there to do the same thing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. 
Duncan Maven, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, thank you for chatting to us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. The Pyramid of Lies, Lex Greensill and the Billion Dollar Scandal is out now and it really is a cracking read. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. We are also running a listener survey so we can better understand what you need from us. The link is in the show notes and those who complete the survey will be in with a chance of winning some lovely merch. And if you really like our little podcast family, do consider supporting our work on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You are quite literally keeping these podcasts going. This is Alex Andreu in the Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofredevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Audio production came from me, Robin Leeburn, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.